Welcome to Overflowing Bookshelves, a podcast for people who love the written word. Could you spend hours browsing through a bookstore? Is your happy place curled up under a blanket with a good book, or perhaps writing a story of your own? Are you constantly adding to your to-be-read list, even though your bookshelves are already overflowing? If so, this podcast is for you. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with published authors about their creative process, path to publication, and advice for living your most fruitful and inspired life. I'm your host, Dallas Woodburn, and I'm absolutely delighted that you are here with us today. I am the author of the YA novels, Thanks Carissa for Ruining My Life, and The Best Week That Never Happened as well as the short story collections, How to Make Paper When the World is Ending, and Woman Running Late in a Dress. I'm also a professional book coach, and I'm passionate about helping people give birth to their own unique stories. You can connect with me at my website, dallaswoodburn.com, and on Instagram and Facebook at Dallas Woodburn Author. Without further ado, let's dive into today's interview. When J. Trevor Robinson was young, he received a well-worn stack of mystery and horror novels from his older brother, and it instilled in him a lifelong desire to be an author. Heavily influenced by Stephen King's scares, Jim Butcher's action scenes, and the larger-than-life characters in Anne Rand's books, he blended those influences with classic literature and pulp horror to write his immortal works debut, The Mummy of Monte Cristo. He has also self-published a young adult horror novel, The Good Fight, and he was published in the number one Amazon best-selling horror anthology, Secret Stairs, as the sole romance story in the collection. He lives in Toronto, keeping the redhead gene alive with his wife and daughter, born Friday the 13th. It was so fascinating to talk with Jay about adapting a classic novel into this new, wonderful, hilarious, um, surprising book, The Mummy of Monte Cristo. And I think if you've ever wanted to write historical fiction, or if you just have questions about trying to balance research and writing, um, this interview is definitely for you. I know you will enjoy it and so excited to share this episode of Overflowing Bookshelves. Hi. Hello. How's it going today? So good. How are you? Not too bad. I heard when I joined the, uh, I echo the sentiment of it feels like Monday. Isn't it weird? I always get so confused. <laughs> oh, hello, Shay. Thanks for being here. Howdy from Fort Worth. Yes. Hey, hello, everybody. So nice. Well, um, and thank you for joining. We're on different time zones. So it's 5.15 my time, but I know it's 8.15 your time, Jay. So a little bit later, but thanks so much for doing this at the end of a long day. Well, hey, thank you for having me. My uh, my toddler is asleep almost directly above my head. Uh, I may have to abruptly start whispering. I have no idea. <laughs> totally get it. Totally understand. The toddler sleep is a magical thing. So, <laughs> well, I'm just really excited to talk with you about your book. Um, with a book like yours, especially that is, um, I mean, I, I guess you could maybe call it a retelling, but I think of it as just the total like breathing fresh life into perhaps a classic that many people have read. I'm just so excited to hear about kind of the 
spark behind the book and like what, um, just how it all began. I must admit, I'm not typically a horror fan, but your writing still really drew me in. Um, I just have to read in like smaller chunks when it's a scary book because I just get too scared. <laughs> so I have to like sit down and take a break. Um, but I think that's something for just your writing that even someone, even if someone's listening who doesn't typically read scary books, I still think this is one that you would enjoy. Um, but maybe we can start off just, I love to introduce my listeners or my viewers um, to you. So do you want to just give us a little a little background into um, how you first got started writing? Sure. Well, I think my desire for writing really started when I was Definitely too young to be reading Stephen reading Stephen King books, and my older brother gave me a big stack of his hand me down Stephen King books, uh, <laughs> and I started reading through them, probably not knowing any better. Uh, and like what you said about having to read in small chunks, I actually got so badly scared by the dark half the first time I read it that I had to put it back on the shelf and come back <laughs> to it a couple months later after I had time to calm down a little bit. Uh, but no, I got kind of hooked after that uh and somewhere in between that and some of the more age-appropriate books i had been reading like uh animorphs for example is another borderline uh, franchise really if you remember the yeah visceral descriptions of how their bodies would change as they turned into animals uh but yeah somewhere in there i just got this urge to i want to make other people feel this way as they're reading something that I wrote. Uh, so I tried, I kept trying and trying and trying to make something readable, but it took, uh, it took a while to get there. That's amazing. I love just hearing you talk about kind of your first, um, like how you fell in love with books and how that naturally led to then wanting to write them, you know, on your own. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit? I know that you have a book that you published before, um, the Mummy of Monte Cristo, and you also, I know, at least write one short story that was in that anthology, but I'm assuming you've written other short stories as well. Do you want to give us a sense of sort of how you began um, kind of shaping narratives? Like, did you start with shorter stories before you tackled a novel for the first time, or kind of how did how did that progress? Uh, well, there were a lot of attempts at short stories <laughs> leading up to uh, my debut novel, which was self-published, called The Good Fight, which is uh, more of a science fiction, horror, young adult kind of book. Uh, some teenagers in Toronto uncover a horrifying secret that learns it's been uncovered and starts trying to keep them quiet. Um, but I think the, where it really turned around from what I kind of think of as my juvenile attempts at writing a story that never went anywhere into actually creating a full book was just kind of drawing on life experiences that I had in between those times. Cause I mean, when you're a little kid, you really only know kind of what you've been int introduced to. And that's when I was starting to write things. It was all just, you know, really just badly copied versions of stories that I'd seen in comic books and cartoons and stuff like that. But it wasn't until I kind of got out into the world and started you know, you look or you grow up, you look around, you start noticing, oh, things are not good out there. And you start building stories around that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with you. Like I look back at some of my first stories I wrote as a child and I can clearly see what I was 
inspired by slash <laughs> kind of copying <laughs> that I had read or or listened to. Um, well, maybe that's a great segue to go into the Mummy of Monte Cristo. I would love to just kind of hear how that idea first came to you or kind of like what your process was like um, with this book. Do you want to maybe also tell us a little bit more about it just for, for listeners who want to hear kind of just the, the synopsis or just like a little bit about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, like you brought up earlier, it's an adaptation retelling, call it what you will, of the classic Alexander Dumas, the Alexander Dumas book, The Count of Monte Cristo, which is in and of itself a big swashbuckling adventure novel all about revenge. Uh, and a while ago, uh, gosh, I, I honestly forget now how long ago it was I had the idea. I think it was just after The Good Fight came out, which might have been 2016. Uh, but Pride and Prejudice and Zombies was really popular at the time. I think the movie was about to come out. Uh, and the book had obviously been a big sensation up until then. And it actually started kind of cynically. I just sort of thought, I bet doing something like that would be easy. I could <laughs> turn around a quick buck on that. What book could I adapt? And I started thinking of, you know, classic books I've already read. And The Count of Monte Cristo immediately jumped to the forefront of, for, forefront of my mind. My goodness, my brain is going faster than my mouth can tonight. Jumped to the forefront of my mind because I had read it fairly recently. It had made a big impression on me. And it's just a fun story to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking, okay, well, what kind of supernatural element can I put in? And I actually first started going down a weird rabbit hole of very specific to France uh, folklore monsters, because a lot of the story takes place in 19th century France. And I learned about some really weird monsters, like a snail, that, a giant snail that lives under a particular hill and has tentacles that extend for miles. This is not a thing I'm making up. It's called uh, <laughs> Lou Carcole, I think. I don't speak much French, despite being Canadian. Uh, but my wife very wisely pointed out, you know, maybe you should use a recognizable monster. <laughs> so people know what you're talking about. Uh, so I thankfully abandoned that idea. Uh, and I toyed for a little while with making uh, making the count like the blob, mm. like from that old like fifties I think horror movie, and just have part of the gag of the story be there's this blob walking around kind of compressed itself into a humanoid shape and it's wearing clothes and talking to people and no one sees anything weird about that. Uh, but I eventually put that aside too and realized, okay, revenge, lots of money and treasure is involved in the story. A mummy seems like a very good fit. And it was actually mm -hmm. while watching the 1999, the mummy movie with Brendan Fraser. Well, not with, I wasn't with Brendan Fraser watching the movie. Obviously I was watching it with my wife. Uh, but yes, it was while we were watching that that it finally clicked. Like, oh yeah, of course, the mummy. These things are driven by revenge. It's... Sorry, my wife is also over there, and I think she's heard something funny that I said about four seconds ago with the lag time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she. Your wife sounds super smart. I want to get that in the um, get that in the record. Glad you had her to help with the idea. Yes. <laughs> Well, yeah. So it seems so the mummy is obviously like once you had that like idea, you know, once you kind of settled on, okay, it's going to be like 
how did the writing flow from there? Was it as easy as you had thought as far as adapting? Um, or, you know, because I feel like your book, obviously, it is, it is a retelling. It's, it's like a fresh telling of that classic. But I think even if someone hasn't read the classic, they would still get so into your book. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm just curious about how you straddle that line of doing a retelling, but also making it seem so fresh and new and like current or relevant for today. I'm, I'm glad you brought up people who haven't read the original Count of Monte Cristo because I was a little worried about that. Like as I was writing it, like, oh, if someone hasn't read the original, are they really going to get into this? Uh, but thankfully, like judging by the reviews I've gotten since it came out, it's about half and half, I'd say, people who say they've never read The Count of Monte Cristo and people who said they read the original and loved it. And both groups, for the most part, have been raving about it, which, you know, has been <laughs> really good to hear. Um, but yeah, it was not nearly as easy as, <laughs> as I had initially thought. Uh, my approach was kind of to go chapter by chapter through the original. So I ended up rereading the whole thing <laughs> over the course of this and just kind of making bullet point lists of like, okay, what's going on? Uh, what can I change? What can I just cut? Because there was a lot, like there's just some historical context about how Dumas was writing it and who his audience was at the time mm -hmm. that kind of contribute to the original being the incredibly long book that it is because he was a travel writer for one thing. And back then, you know, you couldn't easily, if you were, if you lived in Paris and wanted to know what Rome looks like, you couldn't pull up Wikipedia because that was at least seven years off, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, so you had to rely on travel books mm -hmm. where people who had been there would be writing these, like all this wonderful, colorful prose about what the city's like and what you what the sites are and what the cuisine is like. And so he was writing from that kind of background, but he also had experience as a playwright. So he has a lot of dialogue that kind of goes in circles. And depending on who you listen to, he may have also been getting paid by the line as these chapters came out in the serial form. So some of those conversations go in circles a little more than they perhaps have to. Mm -hmm. But doing all that helped me to really get a sense of you know, which which of the storylines could be, you know, adapted a little bit to fit the themes I was going for, which ones needed major overhauls, and which ones needed to be cut entirely. Like, the <laughs> Villefort's second wife, uh, unfortunately, she's just gone. <laughs> I had a big plan for her originally, something to do with, uh, like, hexes and alchemy. There's a lot of supernatural elements added in to the book, but eventually I just realized I couldn't make that work. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a shame because it also resulted in cutting a really cool funeral scene that I really want to find a way to work back in somehow. Maybe maybe if I ever put out a collection of my own short stories, I'll include it as like deleted scene from the Mummy of Monte Cristo. I was thinking that would be so cool to have. Yeah, to have a deleted scene. Um, well, it seems like as you're talking too, I think um, I get a lot of listeners of my podcast who are other writers in addition to just book lovers, but it seems like a lot of what you're describing um, really helps think about just the editing process in general, whether you're doing a retelling or if you're just combing back through like your own first draft. Um, did you feel like 
did, did you do like, what was your editing process like? So you did, it seems like almost a lot of pre-editing while you're writing the first draft. And then what was editing like sort of after you had that first draft down? Uh, well, the, the editing is actually where a lot of the kind of pruning of storylines ended up happening. Cause on the very, on the very, very first draft, I was still trying to keep absolutely everything in. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And it kind of resulted in what I was calling at the time, dra- draft one and a half. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, okay, Velford's second wife, you're going. This other thing, you're going. Uh, this entire major plot line with one of the main villains has to go somewhere completely different or it's not going to be, you know, very interesting despite mm-hmm. losing another cool scene that would make another fun deleted chapter. Uh, if I ever get the chance to do that. Um, but I feel like all that really helped make it stronger in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard, right? There's that saying, I forget who originally said it, but the idea of like killing your darlings that you have certain scenes that you love and they're well-written and it's really hard and painful to like call them out of the book, but it does make the book stronger as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. What? One of one of those scenes, I'm pretty sure if it had stayed in the draft long enough for Immortal Works to see it, uh, they probably might have asked me to change it anyway. <laughs> the PG-13, it got a little, it got a little more into the like heavy horror elements. No, let's call them. Do you want to talk a little bit about creating characters and, in particular, creating um, a strong villain? Sure. Uh, well, really, what I what I find helps when making a villain is just thinking about what makes the kind of characteristics you see in the people that annoy you the most. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it helps. Sometimes it helps to actually still include like relatable, almost sympathetic qualities. So there are three main villains in. Mummy of Monte Cristo. There's Fernand, Villefort, and Danglar, just like in the original. Uh, they all have their own little tweaks, of course. But uh, I tried to keep, especially with Fernand, I feel, uh, keep them in a place where you could almost see how, in their position, you might have made the same terrible decisions that they did under the, like, with the circumstances that they were in. Mm-hmm. If, like, in a moment of weakness, just doing the wrong thing to try and get what you want quickly. Whereas on the other hand, with Danglar, I just leaned into it and was like, this man has no redeeming qualities at all. <laughs> he is an utter sleazebag, and you are going to really hope that he gets what's coming to him by the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's like a spectrum <laughs> where sometimes they're, like you're saying, giving them relatable, or you can kind of put yourself in their shoes. And then sometimes you might want to just really lean into the fun of writing just a pure villain character honestly sometimes it helps to just pick out something that you know is in your own personality that you kind of wish wasn't there (laughs) or you know know you have to resist a lot of the time and just Mm. stick that into the villain and explore it a little bit that way yeah i love that i love that because i do think that i know for me when i'm writing characters they often start like closer to me when I'm first imagining them, but then they definitely do like drift further away where then they're very much their own. I imagine them as their own people. 
but that's a great idea of someone struggling to create a villain. Um, I love that idea of like picking something about yourself and then maybe it kind of is exacerbated or exaggerated as the book goes on. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your writing process um, in particular. So like with this book, it seems much more like a plot, like a plot or like an outliner because you're following, um, you know, this, this classic book. But in general, do you find yourself like with your first novel or with other projects that you're working on? Are you um, an outliner type or do you more just kind of flow and see where the story goes? Do you want to talk a little bit about like your process for drafting? Sure. I've, I'm definitely an outline guy. Uh Every pretty much every story I've written has started off as a series of bullet points that just kind of gets bigger and bigger. Uh, I like I almost like to think of it as uh, like building a trellis to grow tomatoes or peas on. Mm. You build like the absolute basic structure and then you just let things kind of grow from there. I so love that metaphor. With, yeah, it usually starts off with a couple of big bullet points about, you know, is there anything in particular I want to say in the story? Are there any really cool scenes or really cool themes like one of the showdowns between uh the protagonist and one of the one of the three villains i won't spoil too much about it uh but what their big showdown towards the end of the book was one of the first scenes that i actually sat down and like put any kind of detail onto uh just because i was really looking forward to, to seeing them duke it out uh but yeah it just kind of grows and grows and grows from there and eventually it just hits a point where i say okay i'm not going to get any further with bullet points i've got to start writing actual sentences now mm -hmm. uh, adding in dialogue uh and some sometimes it just you know snowballs from there and sometimes i hit a point where it's like okay no i'd have to go right back to bullet points and rearrange this uh the mummy of monte cristo sequel has gone through a lot of that already <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about, about the sequel? I wanted to ask you if you're willing to talk about it, like what you're working on next and what we can expect um, more, for, more from you. Sure. Well, let's see. What can I say without spoiling too much? Uh, well, one of, one of the fun things about doing historical fiction where one of the characters is functionally immortal is you get to explore <laughs> other parts of history. Uh, so the... Let's see. I'm trying to remember what I've already just publicly flat out said about, about Mummy of Monte Cristo, too. Uh, it does take place on kind of the eve of World War One, as all of that was kind of coming together. All, the, all those horrible little jigsaw pieces fitting into place. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot more of uh, Edmund getting to show off, show off some of his cool mummy powers, some more really odious villains. Uh, and a few more just, you know, flawed, ordinary people trying to figure out how to get, how to get through life, really. Yeah. And how, have there been any challenges with writing a sequel compared to writing the, the first book? Like for the sequel, I'm imagining that it's really like, you know, kind of springboarding off of, um, the first one. But I guess I'm also asking this as someone who is attempting to write my first sequel and it does seem like it presents some of its it's wonderful because you already know your main characters but there also are maybe some challenges too mm -hmm. uh i'd say two of the main challenges one has been i'm not adapting anything for this sequel so coming up with everything from scratch which 
I mean, really, it's just kind of a different challenge than the way I was approaching the adaptation because that was so much more work <laughs> than I had originally expected it to be anyway. Uh, the other major challenge is uh, I have a two-year-old now. <laughs> uh, I wrote all of The Mummy of Monte Cristo before my daughter was born, mm -hmm. uh, before I had any kids. And uh, actually, the final round of edits had a ticking clock on it because I wanted to make absolutely sure that it was done and sent back to... Uh, uh, I was going to say sent back to Immortal Works, but no, they made the offer after she was born. So I guess just ready to submit to people, <laughs> submit to uh, agents and publishers and such uh, before my daughter was born, because I knew I was not going to get anything done after that. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's tricky. By the end of the day, when I actually have time to write, I very often don't have the energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it is so different trying to write as a parent. Um, than before. Do you have any tips for other parents um, who are trying to juggle fitting their own creative pursuits in with like all the other spinning plates in the air? I almost feel like I'm not doing it well enough to, <laughs> to be offering anyone advice on it. Um, really just try and try and give yourself a chunk of time at the end of the day after your kids go to after your kids go to bed where even if you don't end up doing anything, you just have the document or notebook or however it is you do it, typewriter, what have you. You just sit down in front of it. And even if you just stare at it for that chunk of time, mm. try not to get distracted by your phone or YouTube or whatever. And if you get even a couple of words onto the page, great. <laughs> yes, small victories. I love that. I found too that... Um, yeah, before my daughter was born, I would write in much longer chunks of time. I think just because I had longer chunks of time. But now, yeah, if I'm able to get 20 minutes in, I feel like that's a huge success. So maybe even for if you're listening, you're not a parent, but you sometimes have trouble like, I don't know, celebrating your wins. Like just even those small bits of writing, I do feel like they, they add up. Absolutely. I mean, even before uh, my daughter was born, there were days where I was just staring at the page, just like nothing's coming out. Nothing's coming out. This is too big a task. I can't do it. And then it's like, come back to it later. Put some words out. Yeah. I heard a, uh, I heard some good advice once where it was the first draft is to make it exist. The second draft is to make it readable. And the third draft is to make it publishable. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And just focus on having it exist is a huge yeah. win at the beginning. Yeah. These days, my first drafts include a lot of little blocks that I'll highlight so I don't miss them later, where it just says stuff like, make something up for here. <laughs> dialogue. This guy needs a name. Stuff like that. Yeah. And it is interesting um, just hearing about your process because as, you're, um, as you describe yourself as an outliner, but also giving yourself the freedom to like jump around um, in the draft. Like you had mentioned that there was that scene late on, late on in the book, which was one of the first ones that you fleshed out. So I think that's nice permission for people too. Like if they're listening and they are, they like having an outline, but that you still have freedom to like skip around or just move forward. Yeah, I think, I think that's really great. Um, just that like forward momentum seems really important. Oh, absolutely. Well, um, I I usually ask. I feel like we've talked about, talked about this a little bit already, but usually I like to ask towards the end. Just um, 
kind of thinking about like advice or, um, I don't know, just words of encouragement. I think that as with any creative pursuit, writing can be challenging. It has its fair share of like rejection, disappointment, like challenges. Um, and I get a lot of questions from listeners just wanting to hear more about that, like advice for sort of what keeps writers going? Like how, how do you keep returning to the page again and again? Or if you were to look back at yourself when you were first starting or to think about someone who's like just kind of starting out on the process. Um, do you have any, you've already given us wonderful words of wisdom, but do you have anything else that kind of springs to your mind as far as like biggest advice or just kind of words of encouragement for somebody? Um, goodness. I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna sound really cliche, but, uh, like really just keep trying. Like with the mummy of Monte Cristo, I lost count of how many, uh, agents and other publishers that I'd reached out to and, you know, either never heard back or heard or got a rejection back from, uh, went through three, three or four rounds of, uh, pit mad on Twitter, which is really sad to hear closing down oh really i didn't know that <laughs> i might be a little happier if twitter closed down but <laughs> uh but yeah no pitmed i don't know why but they're not doing it anymore which mm-hmm. is really sad because that's how uh stacy olson from immortal works found out about my book and how i found out about immortal works and that's what got it published well that's a great story though too that it was your it wasn't like your first round of pitmed that that happened it was like you just kept trying no, it was, uh, yeah, I think third or third or fourth round. And it was a few, I, I don't remember now if it was one day or gosh, it's been so long. I forget if it's a multi-day, if it was a multi-day event or not, but it was definitely a little ways in. And I was starting to think, oh, I'm not going to hear back from anyone this time either. What, what did you feel like when you got that, um, you know, that yes, or did you do anything to celebrate or just, was it just very affirming? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, the original, like the little like on the tweet that meant, oh, hey, I'm interested. Send me the thing. That was that was a big deal in and of itself. Uh, and then when we actually got the offer to, I say we, when I got the offer to uh, uh, actually publish with them, it was, I think, maybe a week after my daughter had been born. So my oh, my goodness. We're exhausted and... Might have even still been in the hospital waiting to go home when I heard when I got the original email. And I was like, this is big. This is almost too big for me to deal with right now. <laughs> I have to go have a nap and then come back and actually read this when my head's on straight. That's a lot to be have happening at once. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh but yeah, no, that was uh that was a very exciting that was a very exciting week for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yes. Well, it's such a great story just about, um, yeah, just the power of like perseverance and believing in your book and believing in yourself. And like you're saying, just keep trying. I mean, I think that perseverance really is the name of the game. Um, So anyone listening who feels like discouraged or, you know, like you want to give up, just keep going and don't give up. Do you, can can you share um, the best ways for people to like find you? follow you i know your book is available everywhere but if there are certain places that you want people to find your book or anything like that sure well the paperback best place to get that is through immortalworks.press 
uh, ebook. It's on Amazon, audiobook, uh, Audible, and I think you can get it through Amazon as well. Uh, and then finding me on social media, it, I'm J Trevor Robinson, pretty much everywhere that I've thought to sign up, uh, except here, oddly enough, J Trevor Robinson, author, uh, where I, yeah, here on Instagram, I mostly just post whatever pops into my head and pester Henry Cavill until I either get his attention on my book or get a restraining order, one or the other. <laughs> Project for the year, hashtag count on Cavill. <laughs> nerd to read my book. <laughs> I love it. Well, we can try to use the hashtag for this interview to kind of help shed whatever, um, you know, help get his attention to if we can. So we'll share that hashtag too. I mean, for goodness sake, he was in the movie version of Count of Monte Cristo. How could, and he's a self-proclaimed massive nerd. It's why he did The Witcher in the first place. So how could he not like The Mummy of Monte Cristo? He would love it. And maybe he would want to adopt mummy into a movie too exactly i'm counting on him to be like the grease in the wheels at netflix or whatever streaming service is around by then <laughs> well we'll use the hashtag to do our part yes <laughs> i love that well thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your book and um it was just so cool to hear about your process and how that all unfolded and i know your books won many awards i didn't say that earlier but i meant to um and it's just a great read. So I hope that people pick it up. Thank you. And I'm excited to uh, pick up your book as well. We've actually got a paperback copy on the way. Oh, so awesome. Sounds like the sort of thing I would have loved when I was like in middle grade myself. Oh. It sounds like a good read now. And it's one of those titles where even though my kid is only two, I'm excited to start building up her, her own library of you know, books that aren't made of cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Okay. Well, thank you everybody too for listening. Um, and if you want to subscribe to the podcast, um, we're going to get some little bonus content. We're going to say bye right now and go record a little reading from the book as well as a writing prompt. So you can find out all of that um, at our Patreon page. So it's patreon.com slash Dallas Woodburn if you want some extras. So thank you so much again, Jay, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on Overflowing Bookshelves. If you enjoy this podcast, it would mean so much if you take a few minutes to write a review on iTunes or Stitcher to help other writers and book lovers find out about us. If you are kind enough to share this episode on social media, be sure to tag me at Dallas Woodburn Author on Instagram or Facebook. I love to surprise my listeners with fun prizes like free books and other literary swag. Also, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show and your ideas for future guests. Please visit my website, DallasWoodburnAuthor.com to connect with me and offer your suggestions. Until next time, happy reading.